episode 222, How to Get Real Results from Your Innovation Department. Today, I speak with Naomi Freed, CEO of Health Innovation Strategies. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Say you're a provider, an insurance carrier, a pharma company maybe, and you've realized that you need to innovate to reduce costs and deliver better care. Or hedge against an upstart, showing up on the scene and disrupting your good thing. Or ensure your risk-based contracts go well. It's one thing to cerebrally decide to be innovative and another thing to get your organization to actually do innovation and arguably just as importantly, cross the O gap or the operationalization gap, as my guest today, Naomi Freed, puts it. Naomi is CEO of Health Innovation Strategies, which she founded after a storied career with innovative greats like Kaiser, Boston Children's and Biogen. My name is Stacey Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Naomi. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it is a pleasure to have you. So speaking of innovation, what would you consider a typical life cycle of one of the innovation departments that you tend to consult with? You know, like where do they start and then what's the middle and, and what does a mature group look like? Sometimes what we see in large healthcare organizations and even other organizations, if people start with just sort of grassroots innovation and they will have an innovation champion who has an idea, maybe starts a small program or pilots in a certain area. And the organization gets excited and decides to launch an innovation program. And that person's often asked, based on the success or even just their interest in innovation, to become the innovation leader. And this doesn't always end all that well, because what's really important for a successful innovation program is to have a clear focus on why you're innovating. And if they do not, in the example that you gave earlier, there was some grassroots innovation and then someone that the individual who somehow or another got labeled innovative is tagged to head the innovation department. But if they don't have the grounding and the alignment around goals, as you say, what tends to go awry? Sort of the classic storyline in that case is that you know, someone gets appointed to run innovation. They go down a path trying to build a successful program based on what they think the organization needs. They may or may not succeed, but what often happens is two or three years out, the organization sort of looks and says, well, what did we get out of this innovation program? And, you know, the CEO and senior leadership may have had a particular idea. The innovation leader may have gone in a different direction. And then the senior leadership feels like we didn't actually get anything out of innovation. And so maybe innovation isn't for us. And that's usually where we see innovation programs shut down or downsized. And it's really a sad outcome because I believe that every organization can be innovative and should be in embracing innovation. But you have to start one step at a time. And the first step really is getting clarity on why your organization wants to innovate and what success looks like for you. And how do you get started with that? So, and I mean, after you get the goals determined, if I know exactly what my goals are, I'm picturing myself sitting there with a blank piece of paper with the goals written on the top of the page. What now? 
So you're actually in a great position, assuming that those goals are the goals that everyone embraces. Once you have the purpose and the vision, then you can really move through and think about how to build infrastructure that will allow you to achieve those purposes. If, for example, you're trying to bring external innovation in, then you start thinking about how to build relationships and who the right folks would be to partner with to bring innovation in. If you want to develop a culture of innovation, there's certain steps that you go through. And then what's really important is to make sure that you have metrics so you can track how your program is doing and demonstrate that you are indeed achieving those goals. It typically takes innovation programs, I think, three to five years to really get off the ground and start firing on all cylinders. And it's really key that innovation programs have enough time to achieve the goals that they've set out to achieve. And is anything that you just said controversial in any way? Like, would anybody disagree with you? I think a lot of times people don't have patience. They want their innovation results right away. I think what we see a lot is that people think that if they can just have some quick wins in innovation, that that will meet their organization's needs. And I've seen many people who have quick wins, but don't actually have the big picture in mind and their programs get shut down also. So, you know, every time I hear quick wins, I sort of cringe and wonder, are those really the right wins or are they just quick wins that aren't going to serve you in the long run? It sounds like you've got a bunch of experience demonstrating that going after a quick win gives you a short-term gain, but long-term, you wind up going in a weird direction. (laughs) Does that tend to be the case, which is why you say that? Or are there examples where a quick win is halfway to a, a larger destination, which enables you to sort of fail fast and prove that you're going in the right place? Quick failure is actually a very important part for uh, a pilot. You know, we talk about quick wins in terms of a rapid prototyping process and a pilot that lets you get information and make a go-no-go decision. When I was at Kaiser Permanente, we were trying to build a new mechanism to give out uh, medication within the hospital because we were finding that there was a lot of jostling around the medication administration machines and the nurses weren't happy with the process. So we actually did some brainstorming. We went into a conference room and we came up with this great idea of taking the computer carts that the nurses were using to chart digitally and to add a medication drawer to them and put in, you know, maybe 25 of the most common medications. So we moved out of the conference room. We decided to build a mock-up, a quick prototype. What we quickly discovered is that our brilliant idea was going to be a colossal failure. You know, those computer carts had been a little bit heavy, and so they were managing to move them from room to room over the course of their eight or 12-hour shift. But once we added a medication drawer and 25 pounds of medication, we built a boat anchor, something that they could not move and that was going to be a dismal failure. And really, it was that quick failure and learning that that idea didn't work and giving it up quickly and allowing to go down another path actually saved the organization probably a lot of time and millions of dollars in potentially building a solution that wasn't going to be effective. You know, that's a great example of a quick failure that's actually a quick win. And I'm a huge proponent of moving quickly when working on an innovation project and looking for the quick wins and taking the quick failures and turning them into learning opportunities. So I think I'm cottoning on to what you're saying, Naomi. You need to understand what the organizational goals are and imperatives around innovation. And say for Kaiser, it was improve organizational efficiency. 
And then from there, sat down and considered, all right, so what are some inefficient (laughs) aspects of what we're doing? Someone came up with jostling around the computer stations is something that we should try to fix. Then the quick one was derived from that, as opposed to somebody sitting around with a blank piece of paper, just writing things on it that are disconnected from the organizational imperatives. So that's the dichotomy that we're looking at. There's different kinds of quick wins. Exactly. So you have to be tied into what the goals of the organization are and the innovation strategy should reflect what the organization needs. As you're trying to innovate, you're going to be rapidly prototyping, trying things out, succeeding, failing. That's great. The quicker, the better, the more learning you can do. After you come up with something that works in pilot, what do you do then? Is that still within the context of the innovation group or does that tend to get pushed out to the department at that level? You know, like what happens now? What you're talking about is something that a lot of organizations wrestle with, which is how do you scale up uh, a great idea? How do you move beyond the pilot phase? And I actually developed the concept of the innovation life cycle and the steps that happen. And the step after pilot program is really operationalization. But there's a gap between the pilot phase and the operationalization phase. And I coined the term the O-gap or the operationalization gap to really name the adoption barrier that so many organizations face. It's this chasm you have to cross to get everyone engaged in using a new idea because the truth of the matter is not everyone embraces change. And, you know, in the ideal world, if you'd had a successful pilot, you would just tell people and then everyone would instantly adopt it and start doing things differently. In the real world, there's a lot of resistance. It's actually very helpful for innovators to understand that they're going to face the O-gap coming out of the pilot phase. And, you know, you see O-gaps in large healthcare organizations, particularly ones with diffuse leadership. You don't see O-gaps so much in organizations that are, are small. Startups are nimble. They can adopt and adapt quickly. You don't see O-gaps so much in real command and control organizations like, you know, the U.S. military. But most healthcare organizations that I've worked with, and certainly the large ones, face uh, the O-gap. And really, what I advise innovators to do is to anticipate the O-gap, that they are going to hit resistance, and actually to prepare for it in advance. And the way you prepare for it, the way you close the O-gap, is you engage with the people who are the gatekeepers to operationalization. And you do that early on. You do that ideally in the initiation or ideation phases, the two steps that come before pilot. And if you can bring folks in and make them part of the process, that I think more than anything will shrink the O-gap. So it's uh, really exciting to think about what happens after a successful pilot, but it also can be daunting if you're not prepared for the amount of resistance you may encounter. And I've heard it said by actually Roy Fernandez in an earlier show. She's a a workflow operationalizer and works with organizations to help streamline their their workflow. And she said innovation is something that should be done with the end user as opposed to to the end user, which is kind of another way, I think, of saying exactly what you're saying. I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, thinking about, first of all, how an innovation is going to be used and making sure that you have the user's needs driving the innovation in the first place is absolutely pivotal. And then thinking about who it's going to impact and how you diffuse this idea more broadly really makes all the difference. I once had an innovator come to me. He'd had a 
successful pilot project, and he couldn't understand why he wasn't getting adoption. And the reason was he actually hadn't gone and gotten leadership sponsorship in the beginning. He basically had gone off to solve a problem he thought existed that the rest of the organization didn't really recognize. And then it became a real challenge diffusing that idea broadly because it was really just a solution to something he needed and there wasn't widespread interest. And what does this whole process look like? Is it standing in front of a whiteboard making diagrams, trying to figure out who all is impacted and who should be in the next meeting and how this all relates back up to strategy and what leaders should be involved? How has this process operationalized itself? Starting at the programmatic level, I think it's really important for an innovation program to have a vision, a mission, to be able to articulate to others in the organization what it is that they're going to accomplish and to be measured against that goal. Usually you need some then particular areas of focus underneath the vision. So again, getting back to the Boston Children's Hospital, our vision was to accelerate, to enhance the innovation culture in order to accelerate innovations in care delivery. So we said we want to really impact the culture. Then at the next level, we said, well, how do we do that? What areas will we focus in? And we said, we're going to focus in grassroots innovation. We're going to focus in enterprise innovation at the strategic organizational level. And thirdly, we're going to build culture by building community and educating people around what innovation is. And then we could actually build programs under those different areas of focus. So as an example, we had a seed fund where people could apply for funding when they had an innovative idea. People who got funding then needed to follow the innovation life cycle for their project. They needed to identify an unmet need, initiate the project. They needed to ideate, come up with the best possible solution, test out the idea through building a pilot or a functional mock-up, and then get across that uh, elusive OGAP, operationalize the idea, then optimize it, and then, if necessary, then start over again and with the process. You have mentioned leaders several times during this conversation so far. I don't think anyone listening to this podcast would underestimate the importance of leadership to ensuring that innovations actually see the light of day and that it's not just talk. What advice do you have for leaders who are attempting to, as you just said, encourage a culture of innovation or, you know, more broadly or more specifically see that there is crossing of the OGAP happening within their organization? I think it's absolutely critical that the innovation leadership be supported by the CEO. I've seen programs that haven't had sufficient support from the CEO get closed down. I think an innovation leader needs to have two really important skill sets. One is the ability to build relationships uh, across the organization to help get people involved because innovation by definition is incredibly collaborative and will be a team effort. And second of all, I think innovation leaders need to be really good communicators because innovation is not something that people naturally understand or know about or necessarily feel as part of their everyday job description. So an innovation uh, leader has to be a real champion and communicator, able to go out and talk with people and work with people around what innovation is and to continuously educate people. I could really see how that would be important, especially if it's an organization that has had a number of false starts with innovation groups or with just innovations in general. 
that sort of increases resistance because people start thinking, oh, well, you know, there was some innovation before and we, we, you know, in quotes, wasted a ton of time building this thing and then it never happened. And, you know, so why should I, in quotes, waste my time again with this other thing, trying to incorporate it into our workflow or whatever, because eventually it's just going to not go anywhere. And then we're going to go back to doing everything the way that we've done it before. And is that something that an organization that you may have seen had to overcome? You're spot on that people will ignore innovation if it isn't properly championed and properly sponsored and that the message doesn't come from the top, that this is actually important. I worked with a, a national payer that had been investing a lot of money in innovation, but it, it had been sort of just uh, very diffusely going out of the organization. And it wasn't until the CEO sort of said, hey, you know what, I want to really rethink how we do innovation. I want to make sure it addresses our business needs, that people started paying attention and thinking about innovation as a core competency that they were going to be needing to have and needing to participate in. I had the uh, privilege of working with the Children's Hospital of Los Angeles leadership team, and they all together worked on what the vision should be for innovation in their organization and went through the whole process of coming up with an innovation strategy, choosing the components of an innovation program, planning out the goals, talking about what the budget should be, that they were so immersed in the potential for the program that they wanted to stay together and continue to be a strategic support committee for the incoming chief innovation officer to make sure that innovation really succeeded. So when you have great sponsorship, really amazing things can happen. As you're talking, I, I'm realizing it might be maybe not a dichotomy, but at least a continuum. On one hand, you were talking about fostering a culture of innovation so that you could have grassroots innovation, which I'm going to call it maybe a decentralized model where you've got a number of teams and a number of individuals who are working on their own innovations to help their own maybe business units. Maybe it's a little bit closer to the ground, if you will, type of innovation. But then on the other hand, you've got an innovation team, which has a leader, and they are working on innovations maybe more at a strategic level, which maybe you could call a centralized approach. How do you reconcile those two approaches? Do they happen at the same time within one organization? In other words, they're not mutually exclusive. They need to be going on simultaneously. Or do you see certain organizations who might be better suited to a centralized approach? versus others who really need that grassroots going on? So I think what's important is that there always be innovation leadership and that that leadership be driving the innovation strategy. And the strategy could be supporting grassroots innovation, as we did at Boston Children's Hospital with seed funds and a digital health accelerator, or it could be focusing on enterprise level innovation, or it could be both. When I was at Kaiser, we were scanning the horizon for external innovation, and we were doing that for both point solutions, grassroots ideas that we could bring in that would enhance communication and improve physician efficiency. But we were also thinking about what would help the organization at an enterprise level. And so we started actually a telehealth strategy because we recognized that that was an opportunity for the entire organization and we needed to work at that level also. But again, it was about external technology that could come in and having that external innovation coming in at different levels. So I don't think you need to sort of choose and have it be either grassroots or enterprise level. I think it can often be both. 
We've been talking a bit about providers and you mentioned Kaiser and you mentioned Boston Children's. As someone who is immersed every single day in what is going on innovation-wise with, let's start with provider organizations, what would your advice be to provider organizations? You know, like what should they be thinking about right now? Right now, we see a lot of providers under financial pressure to deliver care at lower costs. So I think there's a lot of interest right now in thinking about how innovation can help drive efficiencies for the organizations, whether it's to make the emergency department more efficient or the operating room or to deliver care virtually in a lower cost venue. So I think that's a big area of focus today. I think the other, you know, emerging area or theme across the organization is really patients' needs, the patients' experience, and patient access. I think we're, we've entered an era now where we're thinking a lot more about the patient as a consumer and trying to think about how to enhance their experience across the patient journey. This includes, you know, how can we uh, improve the communications between a provider and the patient before the patient even arrives? How can we make them more comfortable physically and emotionally when they are in the hospital with us or in the clinic? And how can we have a more successful follow-up after uh, a patient leaves the hospital setting? And then I think sort of the, the third area, which in some ways ties back to driving down costs, is looking at how we can possibly change our care delivery models to make them more efficient, to think about population health opportunities, to think about value-based care and the innovations associated with these new models of care. So for providers, we've got operational efficiency, we've got improving patient experience, and then looking into various care delivery models, which may help in the future, as you said, with operational efficiency, amongst other things. So same question for payers. So if I'm an insurance carrier who is listening, is there anything that amongst organizations that you traffic with, you know, once again, what are people thinking about in general? You know, I'd say first and foremost, payers are also thinking about bringing down costs. That certainly uh, hasn't changed. And they also feel under pressure. They're also exploring some of these value-based payment opportunities and structures with providers. I think that the payers are also starting to think about how they may extend their business into some of the care delivery areas, whether that's through offering virtual care with telehealth solutions or um, partnering with urgent care or minute clinics. But I think there's a sense that there are some efficiencies to be gained by combining the payment of care with the actual delivery or provision of care. And, you know, we have Kaiser Permanente as one of the great models of complete integration between the uh, financial side of care and the provision of care. But I think we're starting to see more payers begin to think about what the opportunities are and how they might move a little bit into the provision of care. And it's definitely also one more notch on the road toward more vertically integrated as well as horizontally integrated or consolidated, whatever term we choose to use these days, care delivery. I would also add that I think the payers are also becoming more patient-focused and starting to think about how to provide their interactions with patients uh, in a way that is more convenient, is more tech-enabled, is more in line with how consumers interact with their banks today, where you can do a lot of transactions online, you can get information. So there's a lot of interest now in technologically enabling the interactions between payers and patients. And we even have 
payers coming into the market that think that their competitive advantage is that they leverage technology heavily in how they interact and support patients. So I think that's something that the traditional payers also recognize will be an innovation opportunity for them. Well, finally, that has been quite a gap for for quite some time. So it is certainly something which is a long time coming. And I could see that could happen really fast. So if there's an insurance carrier out there who hasn't embarked on that journey yet, I could definitely see how one could be overtaken rapidly in that area, given the, the focus that's being put on it right now. Yeah. And that, that's a great example of sort of disruptive innovation. We haven't really talked about you know, terms around innovation, but you know, there's small scale incremental innovation where someone makes a small improvement, does something slightly different. And then there's disruptive innovation, paradigm shifting, where someone comes to the market with something that's fundamentally different and cheaper, and they are able to grab market share and sort of push out the older traditional players. And I think that's something that um, the payers uh, are definitely uh, watching for as we see the emergence of companies like Oscar and and other um, very novel insurance companies. Yeah, the old innovator's dilemma, right? Continuing our stakeholder analysis here, What's pharma up to? Is there anything disruptive on the horizon that pharma maybe should have antennas up on? Pharma considers themselves, and they really are very innovative. I mean, they bring new drugs to market. They find new cures for disease. They are fundamentally innovating. But I think an area where there's going to be some additional innovation happening is in the area of digital health. I think there's an opportunity for pharma to start thinking about using digital solutions, whether we're talking about computer programs or apps or games, to extend and enhance the value they're delivering to patients. So being able to combine their drug with a digital solution, sort of a D&D approach, I think is going to be the next exciting stage for pharma. And we're seeing a little bit of that starting to happen now um, as pharmaceutical companies are becoming aware of some of the digital health innovations and digital health startups that are out there. Novartis recently did a partnership with Pair Therapeutic to help them distribute their app to deal with addiction. And I think there's going to be a lot more opportunity. And I think that the pharmaceutical companies that really embrace digital health and start taking advantage of these innovations and incorporating them into their offerings are the ones that are going to be the the big winners especially relative to innovative, you know, risk-based contracting. Because the one thing about risk-based contracting is that it behooves everybody to see that when a drug is used, it's used successfully. So that if there are apps or digital tools which would help improve side effect management or adherence or anything which would cause a patient to become non-compliant and therefore reduce the effectiveness of the drug, that starts to hit a manufacturer in the wallet. As the technology curve starts to get steeper or lots of action happening in the, in the technology, digital health side of the house, combined with a lot of action happening in the payment reform side of the house, that definitely could be a confluence of factors that creates a ripeness for disruption that we might not have seen previously. And I think digital health has a lot to offer pharmaceutical industry and in particular their customers. There are 
digital health solutions that can help with drug side effects, certainly with medication adherence, which is a big win for not just the the patient, but also for the pharma. Digital health solutions offered directly to the patients coupled with a drug can also build loyalty among patients that they want to continue to take the drug that has the app that is useful and helpful to them. And if you're talking to a digital health company, what's your advice to them? I think there's a great opportunity for digital health companies to also partner with pharma. Digital health companies have the advantage of being able to build things very rapidly. It's not really a core strength, I think, of big pharma when we think about technological innovation, but it's something that startups do very well. But where startups can really benefit from a partnership with big pharma is really around channel distribution, understanding how to tap into and sell to doctors, how to reach patients, something that pharma has been doing for a long time and is very good at. I think there's also a great opportunity for startups to partner with pharma to learn how to navigate the regulatory environment. Again, something that pharma has lots of experience in and and startups tend not to understand uh, the ropes so well. Naomi, could you just spend a minute talking about your current consultancy and where people might find you if they are interested in hearing more? Sure. Well, thank you for asking. So uh, my firm is Health Innovation Strategies. Uh, We're certainly on the web. What we help large healthcare organizations with, whether they're providers, payers, pharma, is building brand new innovation programs if they're interested and creating an innovation strategy so those programs will be successful or helping with strategic refresh if they have an innovation program already that isn't quite delivering the results that they need. Naomi Freed, thank you so much for being a guest on Relentless Health Value today. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for a wonderful conversation and some great questions. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, You will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.